Welcome to SNC Critical Insights. I'm Sarah Payne, a corporate partner in Sullivan and Cromwell's Palo Alto office, and I'm joined here today with John Sava, also a corporate partner in our Palo Alto office. We're here today to talk about director onboarding. With the upcoming female board director deadlines for companies headquartered in California at the end of 2021, this may be top of mind for some companies. Whether in response to legislative or stock exchange rules, investor concerns, or simply because boards increasingly recognize the value of having a diverse group of voices around the table, we are seeing increased board turnover and expansion. Combined with the incredible number of companies going public through IPO or DSPAC transaction, we're seeing an unprecedented level of new public company board members. These changes have put additional pressure and focus on the director onboarding process and the need to effectively integrate new board members onto the board and with management. That's right, Sarah. And for some companies, the onboarding process for new directors is a pretty routine matter. Other companies may be adding directors for the first time in many years. Regardless of where a company sits on the spectrum, this is a good time for companies to refresh the director onboarding process. There are a lot of great articles, checklists, and other resources for director onboarding, and we could spend hours covering the topic. Today, though, we want to talk about four areas of director onboarding that may need refreshment in light of current conditions and recent developments. These areas are director education, a key points of risk for the company, the role of directors, fiduciary duties, and communications. John, do you first want to cover director education? Thanks, Sarah. First, in the typical onboarding process, directors are given a lot of information about the company, from the company's products and services to its strategy and long-term vision. These conversations and education sessions also typically include extensive education on the company's financial statements and projections. However, it's also important as boards and board committees are increasingly called upon to act in the role of risk management oversight to educate directors on key areas of risk for the company. These areas will be different for every company. For some, it could be data privacy and antitrust. For others, it could be human capital management, management succession, or social and political issues. For almost any company today, Cybersecurity will rank near the top of the list. New directors should be educated on these issues as they relate to the company so they can immediately start contributing to board conversations as well as conversations with management. And many directors joining boards will proactively reach out for that kind of information, including through requests for discussions with the company's chief legal officer or the chair of the audit committee. Another topic that merits focus, particularly for first-time directors, is the role of directors. For some who are in the C-suite of another company, it may be a new role to be looking at a company through the eyes of a director rather than management and adjusting to an oversight role as opposed to a more day-to-day -day function. This can be particularly difficult for people who are used to getting very deep into the details of an issue. And of course, this can continue to be something that directors can and should do, but they can also be educated that where reasonable to do so, they're able to rely on management and outside advisors. 
there is a fine balance between focusing on detailed execution and performing an oversight and global strategy function. But for some directors, they may not understand that they are permitted, again, where reasonable, to rely on others. That's an important point, Sarah. It also highlights the benefits of bringing on fresh board members who have a new set of perspectives. And sometimes it's the management experience, including perspectives on execution that directors bring from other companies that can be the most valuable to a company whose board they join. This is always a fine balance. And the purpose of the onboarding is to give directors the knowledge to understand when it is okay to delegate those details to others. Next up is fiduciary duties. This is likely on any onboarding checklist, and sometimes the topic can feel very rote. However, it's still a good idea to address this topic and give directors the opportunity to ask questions, as each director brings their own background, set of relationships, and potential conflicts to the company. With directors coming from a broad background, whether at companies, investment funds, academia, or government, there may be some inherent conflicts they have due to other relationships that they will need help navigating. Or perhaps they don't have a current issue but could face one down the line. One prototypical example here is a director sitting on the boards of two companies that end up pursuing an acquisition of the same target company. This could happen even if the two companies aren't competitors, as we increasingly see tech companies make acquisition plays outside their core business. All of this can make a conflict very difficult to foresee. And similar issues can arise short of the acquisition context. For example, with companies seeking strategic relationships with the same third party or even with one another. By spending time on these topics during onboarding, directors will receive the message that this is an area that the rest of the board and the company are focused on. And they should feel that they have resources to go to in order to address issues. Our last topic is one of the most important, communications. Over and over again, we see companies being tripped up by communications issues, even when directors and management have the very best intentions and decades of public company experience. The director onboarding process often provides a good opportunity to remind directors not to make public statements about the company unless cleared through the company's PR and IR process. And that includes casual statements on social media where a director might not focus on the need to go through the company's processes. Sometimes directors may feel like they can act as something akin to trustworthy third-party narrators in a way that can benefit the company because they're less directly involved with the company than its management but a director's public statements can often be perceived as being made or endorsed by the company. And especially with a vast personal and professional network a director may have, it is simply too easy for a director to inadvertently share confidential information broadly or embarrass the company or cause issues with customers, partners, or employees. So we always recommend that directors adhere to the company's communications guidelines whenever they are communicating in a manner that could be linked with the company. Along these same lines, there are many benefits to a company speaking with one clear voice. 
Companies work very hard to create coordinated PR and IR plans and public messaging strategies. Multiple uncoordinated voices run the risk of confusing or even contradicting a company's carefully crafted message. Thanks, John. Well, that wraps it up for today. Thank you all for listening to our podcast, part of the SNC Critical Insight series. For more information about our practice, please visit www.solcrom.com. Thank you.